We're really excited this morning to start a new series on Sermon on the Mount. So with that, our reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to the fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning, I want to talk about redemptive stories. What is a redemptive story? A, a redemptive story tells us three things. First, it tells us what our purpose is as human beings. Second, it tells us what the main problem with the world is. And thirdly, a redemptive story tells us what the solution to that problem is. Um, what's our purpose? What's the problem and what's the solution? Any story that answers those three questions, that is a redemptive story. And our world is full of them. In fact, we all live by and subscribe to a redemptive story of some kind. So let me give you a few examples. Um, classical liberalism is a redemptive story that says once upon a time, human beings were free and happy in their original state of nature. But then some people's... Um, personal happiness came into conflict with other people's uh, personal individual happiness. And uh, as a result, we had interpersonal conflict. The solution to that is a social contract whereby we all consent to live together in a political society that maximizes everyone's individual freedom to live however they want, as long as it doesn't interfere with someone else's freedom to live however they want. Classical liberalism is a redemptive story or uh, socialism is a redemptive story that says once upon a time uh, human beings were equal and everyone shared the same resources. 
But then some people decided they wanted their own personal property, my land, my farm, my animals. As a result, um, there was economic inequality and depression. The solution to that is to pool all of our resources together so that we can have social equality. Uh, let me give you another much more recent redemptive story. We could call this one consumeristic wellness. The wellness story says, once upon a time, human beings were innocent and felt good about themselves. But then uh, they were traumatized by things like um, corrupt institutions or externally imposed identities or unfair social expectations. And the solution is to shop around for a customized self-care program that reconnects you to your inner child and nurtures your true, authentic self. Those are just a few of the many, many redemptive stories that fill our world. They all tell us what, the prop, uh, what, what our purpose is, whether it's uh, personal freedom or social equality or feeling good about yourself. They all tell us what the main problem is, whether it's interpersonal conflict or economic inequality or traumatic experiences. And they all tell us what the solution is, whether it's um, a social contract or state-controlled resources or a customized wellness program. But, but redemptive stories fill our world, and we all have a redemptive story that we subscribe to because redemptive stories show us what a meaningful, flourishing, well-lived life looks like. Redemptive stories show us the good life, and every single one of us is looking for the good life. We are beginning a new series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. In it, Jesus offers us an alternative redemptive story that shows us what the real good life is. But here's the thing. Uh, we won't understand how to enter into that good life unless we understand the redemptive story. The name of the redemptive story Jesus offers us is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at the heart of, of Jesus's message. And unless we understand what the kingdom is, we won't be able to enter into the good life that Jesus is offering us. So let's see three things about the kingdom of God in this passage this morning. We're going to see what is the kingdom of God, where is the kingdom of God, and how do we respond to the kingdom of God? What is it, where is it, and how do we respond? Okay? First, what is the kingdom of God? If you were to ask 10 different people, what is the kingdom of God? You would probably get 10 different answers to that question, including probably a few people who would have enough honesty to say, I have no idea what that is. When Jesus began his public ministry, the first words out of his mouth were, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, real quick, um, here it says kingdom of heaven and I've been talking about the kingdom of God, those both mean the same thing. Uh, for many Jewish people, they avoid saying the name of God out of reverence. And so oftentimes they will substitute uh, a, a different word like heaven. But kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they both mean the same thing. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, his Jewish audience at that time, they would have known immediately what he was talking about. Because kingdom of God is a way, it's a shorthand way of referring to the redemptive story of the whole Bible. So for us, it would be kind of similar to if you heard the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. 
As soon as you hear that, you, you immediately know exactly what that's talking about. It's talking about a very specific story, Star Wars, with very specific characters and events and goals. The same thing is going on with Jesus when he talks about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a shorthand way of referring to the redemptive story of the whole Bible. Once upon a time, God created the world good, and human beings lived in harmony with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the whole created order around us. But because we wanted to run the show, because we rebelled against God, as a result, the whole world is falling apart. Evil, suffering, sickness, disease, and death. The whole world is falling apart. The solution is one day God is going to come. He's going to exercise his kingly power in this world, defeat all of our enemies, and bring healing and renewal to the world. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingly power of God defeating our enemies and bringing healing and renewal to the whole world. But now we have a problem. Because when Jesus showed up, at that point in history, Jewish people had been living under oppression for hundreds of years. Military oppression, political oppression, um, economic and cultural and racial oppression. So when they heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, they knew, oh, that means that God is going to defeat our enemies and bring healing and renewal to the world. But, but for them, that redemptive story had gotten twisted into a story whereby they thought, okay, the enemies that God is going to defeat, that's the Roman Empire. And this world of healing re and renewal that God is going to bring, that's going to be for us, the nation of Israel, but not for anyone else. In other words, the redemptive story of the kingdom of God had gotten shrunk down to a tribal, nationalistic vision of political revolution that meant replacing one regime with another. Now, before we see how Jesus addresses that distortion, we have to pause for just a moment because you realize this is describing us too. I mean, just look at our world. We have grown increasingly tribalistic, not just culturally, but especially politically. For many people who lean right, um, there's a growing nationalistic fervor. For many people who lean left politically, there's a growing revolutionary fervor. You see, it's not just right or left. This is all of us. We all have a tendency to see our enemies as the people in the opposing tribe. And we also all have a tendency to think of a world of healing and renewal as being the triumph of our political vision over against others. But when Jesus comes, he challenges our ideologies and he offers us a radically different vision of what defeating our enemies and healing the world actually looks like. Because we see exactly what Jesus means by this in this passage. Jesus doesn't just talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus shows us the kingdom. So for instance, if you look at verse 24, it tells us that the, uh, the people brought all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, which is talking about evil oppression, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now think about this. These are the enemies Jesus comes to defeat. What are these enemies? It's not other people. These, these are enemies of evil, suffering, sickness, sin, and death. They're not other people. These are the enemies that Jesus comes to defeat. You know, Jesus was famous for being a miracle worker. 
But the miracles of Jesus were never just raw displays of power that he was doing for the sake of impressing people, like flying through the sky or making the sun do backflips. No, the miracles of Jesus were always signs pointing to the kingdom that he was bringing, signs pointing to a world where sickness would be healed, where evil would be defeated, and where the whole world would be renewed. Those were the the things that the, the miracles point to, the renewal of the world. And notice also that it's not just for one special people group, it's for everyone. So in verse 25, it tells us that when Jesus was doing all of this, it says large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they all followed him. Now, if we were to put all of this up and show it to you on a map, you would see that this is not just the nation of Israel. This is everybody in the ancient world at that time. In other words, the kingdom of God is not just some tribal nationalistic vision. It is a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision of healing and renewal for the whole world. That's the kingdom of God, and that leads to our next point. We've just seen what is the kingdom, but secondly, we need to see where is the kingdom? Specifically, um, here's the question. What does Jesus mean when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near? Uh, Remember the redemptive storyline of the Bible we were just talking about. The kingdom of heaven means that God is going to come, defeat our enemies, and bring healing and renewal to the world. Now, most people back then would have understood this to mean that it was all going to happen all at once. That when God shows up, boom, world made new, it's all happening immediately. But it's very interesting the way Jesus says it. He says the kingdom has come near. In other words, he's saying the kingdom has come, but not fully. It's here, but only partially. It's beginning its work right now, but the fullness of that work is not completed quite yet. One of the most helpful ways, uh, personally, that I like to think about this is a sunrise. You know, when, when the sun just begins to pop up over the horizon, we don't get the full sun shining in all its brightness immediately, do we? It's not like we just go from pitch black middle of the night to the sun shining in its full strength in the middle of the day all at once. No, it happens much more gradually. So especially imagine if you're going through a particularly dark night. You're waiting for the sun because with the sun comes light and hope and encouragement and renewal especially if if it's a particularly long night, like in the middle of the winter. Sometimes waiting for the sun to rise can really stretch your patience. But here's the thing. The longer the night is, the darker the night is, the more life-changing it is when even just that first glimmer of light begins to pop up over the horizon. Is it the full light shining in all its strength yet? No. Are you experiencing the fullness of the warmth and the comfort of the sun yet? No way. You might still be freezing to death and barely able to see your hand in front of your face, but but even so, just the bare glimmer of light popping up over the horizon, it begins to change your life right away. Friends, that's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom has come near. He says the light has dawned. It's the fullness of it is still in the future, but even just the partial arrival of it right now begins to change your life right now. But that's not all. When Jesus says the kingdom has come near, what he's really saying is the kingdom has come near because I have come near. I am the king. In other words, wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. 
Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. That means that to come into the presence of Jesus is to come into the presence, the sickness healing, evil defeating, world renewing presence of God himself. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. And boy, we really see that coming out in this passage. If you look at the beginning of chapter five, it tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds that were following him, it says he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, when it says that Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down, you and I would look at that and we would say, okay, big deal. But for any Jewish person back then, this would have been bursting with meaning because mountains in the Bible are very important places. In the Bible, the mountain is where you meet God. So for example, in the book of Exodus, God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He leads them into the wilderness and he takes them to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And it's on the mountain that the presence of God comes down. And when the presence of God comes down on the mountain, God, he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Basically, it's God's vision for how he wants his people to live the good life. So when Jesus goes up on a mountain and sits down, do you see what's happening? This is a way of saying that to come into the presence of Jesus is to come into the very presence of God himself. That's what's going on here. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Now, here's why this is so important for us. On, on the one hand, there are many people who would say, look, Jesus was a wonderful ethical teacher, and the Sermon on the Mount is the example par excellence of Jesus's ethical teaching. Now, there's no doubt that the Sermon on the Mount is full of ethical teaching, and we're going to do a deep dive into that over the next several weeks. But here's the problem. If we say that Jesus is only an ethical teacher, that he's only a, a teacher of abstract moral principles, and that we just apply those teachings and principles to our life and to the world, then what that means is the really important thing is the teaching, but not the teacher. But this passage is showing us that to separate Jesus from his teaching is a profound mistake. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. That means that if you try to separate Jesus' teaching from him, that, that you will never be able to find either. In other words, if you try to, to, to take Jesus' principles and apply them to your life in order to find a good life, you will neither find the life that you're looking for because you're not finding it in Jesus. Because Jesus says, not just, I will show you the good life. Jesus is saying, I am the good life. It's in me. You cannot separate the life I'm offering you from the life that's in me. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. So that's one problem. But the other side of the problem is this. There are many other people, and these are more people within the traditional conservative um, evangelical Christian world. Uh, they do have faith in Jesus. We do believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. But very often what that means is um, believing certain things about Jesus, especially believing that, that Jesus died to forgive us our sins. And if we believe certain things about him, then we'll go to heaven when we die. But our lives right now remain untouched, unchanged, because it's all about believing certain things in order to go to heaven when you die. It, friends, many of you, maybe, maybe you're exploring faith and spirituality. Maybe you're um, just beginning to check it out, but you may be suspicious about Christianity, maybe a little skeptical because you see the lives of many Christians and you see that they look just like the rest of the world and a lot of times maybe even worse than other people in the world. 
One of the big reasons for that is because very often, especially evangelical Christians, we believe in something called salvation by grace, not salvation by works. And that's important. In fact, I'll talk about that a little more in just a little bit. But oftentimes the fear of of earning our salvation, that we're supposed to live by grace, not by works, means that we um, avoid trying to do anything or exercising our will or, or, or working hard at growing in the faith. Um, But there's a problem with that. Dallas Willard says this perfectly. Dallas Willard was one of the great spiritual masters of the 20th century. He used to say all the time that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And there's a difference between those two things. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Friends, wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. Now, here's the point. The kingdom of God is not something that we're waiting to enjoy sometime in the future. The kingdom of God is the immediate availability of the power and the presence of God to come into your life and begin changing you and healing you and transforming you right now. Many of you may have things in your lives you wish could change. Many of you may have things in your life you know that they need to change, and yet you are struggling with those things. I want to encourage you that the the, the kingdom has come near. That means that the, the kingdom of God, the life and the power and the presence of God is available to you right now to bring change and healing and renewal to your life. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what is the kingdom. We've just seen where is the kingdom. But lastly, how do we respond to the kingdom? And the answer of Jesus basically is he says, <laughs> repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, when we hear this word repent, for us in our culture, that word comes with a lot of very negative cultural baggage because it's easy for us to think that repent means feel really, really badly about yourself. Especially in our culture, which is, again, a very therapeutic, affirming, um, wellness-oriented culture, which um, encourages us all that, that we have to feel good about ourselves. To hear the word repent Um, To us, it just sounds offensive and self-harming, but that's not what repent means. Repent does not mean feel really badly about yourself. The basic definition, it literally means change direction. That's all it means. Repent means change direction. In other words, stop following one redemptive story and start following another redemptive story. That's what Jesus means by repent, change direction. In fact, we see um, really good examples of what this looks like in this passage. So when Jesus first meets Simon and his um, uh, brother Andrew, it says that they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. But then when Jesus sees them, he uh, calls them and he says, come, follow me, and I will uh, send you out to fish for people. It says that once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus says, follow me. Friends, change direction. Stop following one redemptive story and start following Jesus. And if you do that, what that means is you become a disciple. What is a disciple? You know, there's a big difference um, between being a disciple and just someone who's around Jesus. Just because you're around Jesus does not necessarily make you a disciple. So for instance, if we look one last time at the beginning of uh, chapter 5, says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So you notice that there are crowds there and there are also disciples there. And 
when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to discover that the crowds are still there. That means that there's a difference between the crowds and the disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. A disciple is someone who's learning to live the way Jesus lived. That means a radical change of direction. In fact, it means radical change of commitment. You know, every human being is looking for certain things, especially we're all looking for security and we're all looking for significance. We're all looking for security, not just um, material and physical security, but also inner security. And we're also all looking for significance, a sense of worth and value and meaning and, and dignity as human beings. In our culture, you see that, especially in our emphasis on identity. But every human being, we're all looking for security and significance. When Jesus says, come follow me, change direction and follow me, what he's saying is relocate your security and your significance in me. Relocate your security and your significance in me. So for instance, we see this with Simon and Andrew. When Jesus calls them to follow him, it says that they, immediate, that they left their nets and followed him. Now, they left their nets. Understand, they were fishermen, and in that world, you know, fishermen weren't rich, but they definitely made a decent living. They were kind of like small business owners. But for them to leave their nets means they're leaving their source of financial and material security and relocating their security in Jesus. But that's not all. Notice when Jesus calls James and John, these two brothers, it says that they left the boat, that's their financial security, but it also says they left their father and followed Jesus. Now, Middle Eastern culture is a traditional culture, which means that your significance and identity as a human being is bound up in your family, especially your father. So for them to leave their father, to leave their family, means that they're abandoning their um, sense of security and uh, significance and identity and relocating those things in Jesus. Friends, Jesus calls every single one of us to relocate our security and our significance in him. That's what it means to follow him. Jesus is saying, follow me. Leave all of that stuff behind and begin following me. I will give you a new way of life. I'm going to transform the way you live. But you have to follow me. You have to leave your nets, leave your family, leave your security and your significance and start following me. And dear ones, the only way we can do that is if we see that Jesus has already done all of that for us. He's already done all of it for us. Because notice what Jesus says at the beginning of the passage. He doesn't say repent in order that the kingdom of God can come near to you. He doesn't say repent in order that the love and the presence and the power of God can come into your life. Notice he says repent for the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, Jesus is saying um, you don't change direction and start following me in order to get the love and the presence of God in your life. You change direction and start following me because the love and the power of presence of God has already started to come into this world through Jesus. Because who is Jesus? If you think about it, if he's God, if he really is the king of the universe who's come into this world, that means that from all eternity, Jesus had ultimate security. He reigns on the throne of heaven from all eternity. There is no security like that. And Jesus also had infinite significance. Not only the um, 
the worship of angels and all the host of heaven, but the love and the affirmation and the delight of God the Father shining on him from all eternity. There is no significance, no sense of worth and value and identity like that. Jesus had it all, but Jesus left it all. Jesus left his nets. Jesus left his Father in heaven in order to come here and pour out his life for us on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated all of our enemies of evil, suffering, sin, sickness, and death by allowing them to unleash the full force of their power on him. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was cast far, far away so that the love and the presence of God could come near to you and begin healing and transforming you right now. Friends, trusting Jesus means trusting him and following him. And when you trust Jesus and begin following him, then the love and the power and the presence of God come into your life and they begin healing and changing and transforming you right now. The kingdom of heaven is not something that we're waiting to enjoy sometime in the future. The kingdom of heaven is the immediate availability of the life and presence of power of God to come into your life and begin changing you right now. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks um, looking at, at what that means as we dig more deeply into the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, I just want to ask you, are you willing to relocate your security and your significance in Jesus are you willing to do that? Because what this means is you've got to step out on the road and start following him. Are you willing to relocate your security and your significance in him? The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the life, the good life that you were created for, and it's available to you right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. Lord, not some abstract place that exists far away in the future that we're waiting to enjoy, but your life, your presence, your power that is available to come into our life right now and begin changing us and even changing this world, Lord. We long for that, and we pray even this morning that you would help us to see more truly and, and more um, uh, powerfully just who Jesus really is, the kingdom of God in the flesh. We pray this morning that you will help us to relocate all of our security and significance, to leave everything behind and follow Jesus as he leads us in transformation, not just of our lives, but of the whole world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.